This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. What's going on, guys? Welcome to the first episode of Real Vision's weekly AI Firehose, where we drink from the pounding stream of everything happening this week in the AI space. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by Mikhail Voloshin. Mikhail, always a pleasure to be with you, dude. It's always a blast. You know, the field of artificial intelligence just moves so darn fast. Uh, you, know, you and I talk about this stuff all the time, so let's, uh, let, let's share some of what we chat about with the general world and see what, you know, see what their reactions are, you know? Yeah, obviously, this is the first time we're doing this show natively for YouTube and other platforms. So we should talk a little bit, I think, uh, up front about who we are, what we do, and how we came to this. Uh, I'm Ash Bennington. I'm a host at Real Vision. Uh, Mikhail, talk about your background, because it's just so impressive in terms of this field and the relevancy to all the conversations we're about to have. No, shucks. Uh, well, I've been in the field of artificial intelligence for basically as long as I can remember, um, ever since I watched short circuit and terminator as a kid uh two very different perspectives on the future of, of ai the um uh i went in college i studied neuroscience uh my graduate work was uh was on uh, aquatic invertebrates and they're they're very very simple nervous systems uh i left that program to go work at microsoft speech recognition labs uh in the time since then i've worked at military contractors on communication devices uh, for encrypted protocols, I've uh, I've worked at Google uh, for their on their double click team, and I apparently have a very noisy little co-star right here that wants my attention. Um, that sounds like a cat. It is a cat. She'll be hopping up here on and off during the course of the presentation. Um, <laughs> she uh, she she definitely wants to get in on this action. Um, the, <laughs> uh, nowadays I run a consulting company called Mighty Data Inc that uh, deals with uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence related problems, in, mostly in the financial and bioscience spaces. Uh, and I've, I'm also a published writer uh, for, you know, I, I, can't, uh, I can't not make a plug for my novel Dopamine over here. Uh, it's about uh, the Russian mafia, computer hacking and Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I, I, I hope you get it and like it and read it and think it's awesome. All right, Mikhail. You know, let's talk a little bit about what we're doing on the show. You know, this came out of a series of conversations that we had on Real Vision, just an incredible response from the Real Vision audience. You and I have been having these conversations back and forth, and we just wanted to bring it to our viewers and our listeners, because I think there's just so much that's happening in the space right now. It's really hard to get your head around uh, if you're a layperson, if you don't have a background in this stuff, to understand the hype 
from what's real to understand uh, where we are in terms of the actual implementation cycle of some of these technologies, uh, and really just to get a sense of all the things that are happening quite literally around the world in the AI space right now. That's how I think about what we're doing here. What were some of your goals uh, for having this conversation on a regular weekly basis here on Real Vision? Well, look, when we're dealing with an exploding field like artificial intelligence, it's really easy to get lost in the headlines. Um, and so you'll read a headline that suggests that the world's about to change tomorrow, and it turns out that if you read the article, the nitty-gritty actually isn't all that exciting. Or if you, or the vice, the opposite often happens uh, too, where like some little passing detail by some quote in some press release turns out to have major, major impact down the road. And so as a layperson, it's really hard to be able to tell one from the other. So I'm hoping to be able to curate some of the content and to be able to sort of sift the wheat from the chaff and see what actually might pan out uh, versus what's just a flash in the pan. Hey, talking of which, I know we've got a couple of stories that we've both been excited to talk about, about human-computer interface, brain interfaces. I mean, this is some really interesting, sort of very high-tech, very cutting-edge stuff. This is some really sci-fi, cyberpunk material right here, and the, the stories that I've chosen here are real uh, and are, you know, are indicative of progress that might seem like a total breakthrough if you're not otherwise familiar with the um uh with the with the research that has been going into it the first of them is a company called unbabble uh they uh, they've produced a device that allows for you to type at a pretty at a pretty fast rate without mo without actually moving any muscles or with moving muscles in a very very uh, microscopic, like, imperceptible level. This is not uh, the same, this isn't quite like reading your mind, but they find that it might be really, really helpful for sufferers of Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. Um, and it does uh, speak of ways to interact with the computer that are just, like, just now breaking out. So let's try to explain what this is. It's the idea of EMG. This is electromyography. This is that nerve, uh, not rather nerve impulses, but muscle impulses. Talk a little bit about how this works, uh, what some of the constraints, limitations, and benefits of the technology are. So let's, uh, let's start by talking about what it's not. Uh, there's EEGs, which are electroencephalographs, which are these big helmets that you sometimes see with like lots of, you know, electrodes all over them. And those read people's, uh, brainwaves, but the data that you get out of them is very, very fuzzy and they're not directly subject to conscious control, uh, by the operator. So, uh, they're not really particularly amenable to operating a machine. Uh, the... Other thing that they're not is uh, what's called chronic implantation. We'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, that's when you actually slice open the skull and insert an electro uh, a, a microchip with a grid of electrodes on them. Um, what this is is something very different. Uh, it's non-invasive. Um, it is a sleeve. And what that, what non-invasive uh, means for those without medical backgrounds, it means you don't have to physically, surgically implant anything. You can literally just walk up to the device and use it. Exactly. You don't cut anything open. It doesn't go inside your body. It just goes on your skin. Now, um, what it's doing is uh, it's an armband that's listening on the neuromuscular junction between the muscles of your arm and hand uh, and, and your peripheral nervous system. So when you move your arm, 
uh, your brain sends signals down your spinal cord, which go to your arm nerves. Uh, in the words of Invader Zim, humans don't have an arm control nerve. Um, the um, uh, and then that uh, electrify, you know, that, that uh, electrically stimulates your muscles electrochemically, and that's why your muscles move. In sufferers of ALS. Uh, the nerves are just fine, but the muscles themselves don't respond to the stimulus, uh, so nothing actually moves. However, uh, you can use these electrodes to listen for these motions. Now, what this company on Babel has built uh, is a device that, uh, that, that listens for how the patient would have moved their arms had, the, um, uh, ha had their muscles actually been working. Uh, they then feed this to an artificial intelligence that is integrated with a large language model. And LLM is the same kind of AI that's being used in GPT. Uh, GPT is a form of LLM, basically. So what it's doing is something very similar to autocomplete or... You know the software on your phone where, like, you swipe your finger around and based on your swiping motion, it figures out what you were intending to type, even if you only approximately swiped near the uh, the keys that you had intended to hit? So it's basically a, it's basically like a predictive algorithm that looks at the keystroke input and then puts together the probabilistic determination of what the next word should be. Exactly. And because it's hooked to an LLM, the probabilistic determination is much, much better than any than any previous development it's a lot more it, it, it's a lot better at knowing what word is go the person is going to type next now the patient does need to be trained to use this uh they uh, the ai and the patient sort of need to work together to learn how the pa to learn how to interpret the patient's intentions um so, so, so there's, uh, there's gonna be a there's gonna be a learning curve on this but i guess the upside is that obviously this isn't something that's going to be reading your thoughts from across the room you have to very much cooperate indeed train uh the language model to use your particular movements in order to correctly interpret what those words should be exactly um but you know after all is said and done you know uh, a, uh like not only is this going to be useful for sufferers of als which is just an absolutely horrific disease um, yeah. And like this could be this could allow them to talk in a much more fluid, natural manner by con uh, to just to put things in perspective, uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, probably the single most famous uh, sufferer of ALS, even more famous than uh, Lou Gehrig, whom the disease was for a while named after. Uh, he used an EOM, sorry, an EOG device, which I think stands for electro-opticograph. Um, and he could type it about uh, two words per minute. That, that, uh, means it, this... that means it measures the, the movement of his eyes and interprets the yeah. movement of his eyes in order to form a series of characters and ultimately words that allowed him to speak in a synthesized voice that we've all heard on the Simpsons. Exactly. Um, th this technology came from uh, pe uh, the, the fact that sufferers of ALS, the, uh, the eyes are usually the, the last voluntary muscle to go. Um, and they are, um, like they were originally, this research came from just looking at a grid of letters and they could see which letter the person was staring at. So Hawking could type at about two words per minute. Um, Halo, the device being released by this company Unbabel, allows people after being trained to type at about 20 words per minute. So 10 times Stephen Hawking's, uh, rate. And they, uh, the company Unbabel is 
looking to get a consumer grade rate of about 60 words per minute uh and like at once they hit once they hit 60 they'll release commercially and then this will become viable for the consumer public not and that's just a folks huge that's some... a huge improvement it's a huge number a huge improvement and a dramatic difference one of these things where a difference in quantity really changes the difference in quality this is not the only news uh, of the week where your uh, dual background in ai and neuroscience is helpful i understand there's another story about bci brain computer interface this one's really really cool this comes out of uc san francisco um and it features a woman who got paralyzed by a stroke i think something like 30 years ago and a researcher at a research team at ucsf uh implanted a grid of electrodes on a chip uh into the motor cortex of her brain which uh was designed to measure the motions that she would send to her larynx and tongue and lips uh, in order to enunciate words. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Here, let me just read this. This is directly from uh, Neuroscience News. This is the clip uh, that we're talking about. Chang, that's the lead neurosurgeon on this team, implanted a paper-thin rectangle of 253 electrodes onto the surface of the woman's brain over areas his team had discovered are critical for speech. The electrodes intercepted the brain signals that, if not for the stroke, would have gone to muscles in her tongue, jaw, and larynx, as well as her face. A cable plugged into a port fixed to her head connected the electrodes to a bank of computers. This really does sound more like uh, the sci-fi aspect of literally having a brain implant that you can then use to actually create synthesized speech. This is, you know, again, it's just a almost a level of sophistication higher, uh, EEG versus EMG. I mean, this is, the, the idea of a, of a port with a cable running into your head is, you know, something that's, that we've seen from the Matrix and from, uh, you know, Ghost in the Shell. And so this is what we refer to as chronic implantation. Uh, that chip is in there. It's it's not coming out, you know. So the um, what this is doing is again the uh, working on the electrical signals coming out of the brain. The difference between this technology and the armband one is that is primarily that it's measuring not the neuromuscular junction, but actually the originating signals in the brain. Now, in this particular case, the AI uh, was monitoring her brain activity and correlating it to phonemes that would have corresponded to what she had spoken had the had the uh, muscular activity actually been able to activate um and over several weeks uh she was able to work with a team of ai specialists that were able to train this algorithm to recognize like yes she would have said an e at this point she would have said a p at this point and so on um, there are 39 phonemes that can be used to encode any word in the English language. And after this several week training period, she was actually able to uh, 
I don't, she was actually able to communicate in more or less real time. Uh, not only that, but also make facial expressions on an avatar in a virtual reality environment uh, that could move its face in a way that her natural face no longer could. What an incredible story and such an amazing opportunity for people who have suffered from these chronic diseases, from illness, from injury. I mean, just a, just an incredible moment to be alive as we talk about all of this uh, new technology and its ability to benefit humankind. Okay, and now for something completely different. Let's shift gears here a little bit and talk about money, specifically OpenAI losing money hand over fist. This is a story that both of us were looking at this week. What's your take on this, Mikhail? Oh, man. Um, you know... OpenAI is a private company. Uh, they don't have openly disclosed financials, but word on the street is that they lost over half a billion dollars in 2022. Um, yeah. You know, they, like how it's how it's possible to lose money uh, when you're as huge and as popular as OpenAI might be something that might not be entirely intuitive to folks. Um, so. Well, you know, Amazon lost a lot of money. Uh, you just keep growing the company and you try and grab market share uh, while not caring at all about your margins. Let me just read this. Uh, this is a quote from Business Today. This is the actual numbers here. OpenAI, the AI research company behind the popular language models like ChatGPT and DALL-E2, uh, has reportedly doubled its losses to $540 million in 2022 due to soaring development expenses for its chatbot. The company is now looking to raise as much as $100 billion in the coming years to fund its goal of developing artificial general intelligence, that's AGI, and advanced AI capable enough to improve its own capabilities. By the way, Mikhail, before AI starts improving its own capabilities, this is a great time for you as an AI engineer with these rising uh, costs, I guess, for those input costs are coming from human labor, I would imagine, uh, to sell your services. My consulting business has been doing well. Let's let, let's bet. just leave it at that. Um, the, you know, I will say uh, that, like, so a lot of people might not understand the financials behind uh, what it takes to operate these models. So what happens is when I write software that uh, for a client or for my own needs that uh, uses GPT, GPT is a cloud service, and every single word that I send to GPT. Uh, and every word that it generates back to me costs me money. Uh, it's something like uh, one and a half cent. Uh, sorry, uh, yeah, one and a half cents for every ten thousand words. It's not a lot, uh, but if you're processing lots and lots of uh, documents, like for example, let's say if you're trying to give it the entire collected works of Shakespeare, uh, and in order to have it try to create a new play that Shakespeare would have written. You know, that the, that adds up. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be quite a lot. Um, so that's how, that's how OpenAI makes their money, is that, like, people literally pay them for that. But uh, OpenAI has some substantial costs. First of all, OpenAI has hired some really expensive engineers, uh, and the, uh, the, the folks that uh, develop these models uh, are themselves very well reimbursed um how much how much have have these have these rates increased uh, since chat gpt has become so much a part of popular culture are people earning double yeah i mean is it like um double tri double or triple is not uh is not an unreasonable estimate there's wow. uh that there's a caveat to that which is that um a lot of folks who 
uh, were in data analytics and statistics and other fields that are tangentially related to machine learning uh, have been rebranding or uh, retooling their skill sets in order to specialize on machine learning and natural right. language processing because of the increased demand. Yeah, so and you would too. Yeah. So there's uh, there's been an increase in supply uh, there, and in addition, there's been an increase in demand. So the uh, the field is on fire right now. So, the so even with supply rising, you're still seeing rates that are double or triple. Exactly, exactly. So you've got so OpenAI's hardware costs are substantial. Obviously, these uh, the equipment that runs these uh, large language models is ridiculously expensive. Um, and getting more so because of the demand for it. Um, there's by, a. By the way, uh, talking of which, I, I want to talk about Nvidia's blowout earnings yesterday. This is a huge story in the space, uh, and it's a huge story more generally in finance. I want to just read this to you from Bloomberg. Nvidia said sales will be about 16 billion in the three months ending October. Uh, if the gain holds, it will mark a record. Analysts had estimated. Just $12.5 billion, still a huge number, but a massive increase. According to data compiled by Bloomberg, NVIDIA's results last quarter blew past projections as well, and it approved an, addition, it approved an additional $25 billion in stock buybacks. The stock's been on fire. It was up this morning, no surprise. You know, um, the, uh, a lot of people might not know this, but the, the math that runs a lot of these large language models. So uh, these LLMs are, they adhere to an AI data structure called a neural network, which is basically a set of, let me describe it this way. It's a set of equations uh, that are loosely based on a very rough understanding of how neurons in the human brain interact with one another. So I don't want to overstate what a neural network is. It's very, it, it's, only barely related to actual biological neurons, um, in concept only. But, so, so why do they uh, why do they call it that? What's the reasoning behind why is it called a neural network? It was um, it's actually one of the oldest AI models that's ever been built, uh, and it was originally put together by a um, uh, by a psychologist who uh, was studying some of the quote unquote wetware or hardware of the human brain and thought, hey, I wonder if you got a machine uh, to uh, to do this. It was a man named Frank Rosenblatt, who I believe built his first prototype in, I want to say, 53, something like that, 1953. And uh, this is a machine. It was an analog computer that would, uh, that had a set of dials representing the strength of connection weights, um, you know, X, X, uh, synaptic weights, quote unquote. Uh, and the machine actually had motors that would reach back onto its own dials and turn its own, you know, it would adjust and recalibrate its own settings. So it was some really like diesel punk era sci-fi back at the time. Now he called it, these things started to be called neural networks for the simple reason uh, that he was inspired by uh, neural, by the principles of neural connectivity and the way that actual neurons uh, encode data and record memories. Um, but since, uh, since that time, we've learned a lot more about the actual biology of neurons, and more importantly, the equations that drive neural networks have sort of done their own thing and have gotten refined and optimized in their own directions, so they've kind of diverged. But we still call them neural networks due to that sort of underpinning of, uh, of coevolution. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
such cool stuff. But Kel, talking about the interface between human beings and machines, there's some interesting questions that are coming up right now about copyright law, about your ability to protect intellectual property that's been generated from artificial intelligence. This is really fascinating to me uh, because it touches on a whole lot of areas of intersection that I'm interested in, the arts, technology, uh, drama, film. I mean, it's just a really interesting open space. Talk a little bit about what's happening there. So there's been a major development in court cases uh, where uh, it's been ruled that uh, AI-generated art is not copyrightable, uh, which means that if you produce a show or uh, even a character completely by machine, then you cannot copyright that material, uh, and what that means is that you can't make money on it. Uh, the real-world impact of this is that it's a major deterrent from ho uh, for Hollywood. Uh, this means that, like, this, they can't copyright AI-generated movies, which means that they're not going to make them, uh, which right. is probably good news for a lot of writers out there. Well, here's the, here's the really interesting thing, and I'm fascinated by the Hollywood intersection here. Let me just read this from The Hollywood Reporter. In March, the Copyright Office, this is the U.S. Copyright Office, affirmed that most works generated by AI aren't copyrightable, but clarified that AI-assisted materials qualify for protection in certain instances. This is really interesting to me. An application for a work created with the help of AI can support a copyright claim if a human selected or arranged it in a, quote, sufficiently creative way that the resulting work constitutes an original work of authorship, it said. So this is what's really interesting to me. If you go and you go into ChatGPT or some other LLM, large language model, and you tell it to create a play, create a screenplay, write something, write a poem, and then you go in manually and you adjust it. Uh, maybe you make some changes. You change the name of a character. You, you change a couple of circumstances. And then here's the weird thing that I've been thinking about. You feed it back into the AI to improve it again. You've kind of co-evolved that script that poem, that novel, whatever it is that you're creating, along with the machine. And therefore, according to this interpretation from The Hollywood Reporter, at least quoting the Copyright Office, it sounds as though that may be something under U.S. law right now that is, in fact, copyrightable. I mean, this is a really weird zone we're entering. It's, there, there's a lot of room for, there's a lot of gray space, let's put it that way. And, you know, they, they kind of had no choice uh, other than to say that you have to allow AI-assisted work for one simple reason: uh, the where do you exa where exactly do you draw the line between where the AI helps and where it doesn't? Like right. if you yeah, write like, a screenplay and it has a spell checker, and like right. that spell checker is technically a form of AI. Like, are you are, are do you now lose your copyright because you like right. fix the fixed separate and change the e to an to 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 an a and like now you've lost copyright on that work that's not that, that can't that's, work you that know? can't happen grammarly would be another example that we you know i run all my emails through before you send them out you know make embarrassing grammar mistakes that's ai so it seems to me that it's going to have to be you know almost like a modicum or a scintilla of originality and effectively what that means is that the the big broad headline uh that works created entirely by ai are not copyrightable in practice 
winds up being almost completely nullified. It seems as though it's almost the opposite of what the headline would suggest. By the way, we should say that this is uh, an article that comes from The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, that's like maybe reading uh, about green energy uh, in a <laughs> newspaper called you know, Coal Miner Today. You're probably going to see a bit, of, uh, a bit of a bias toward creative professionals. By the way, I, I'm not unsympathetic to the case there, but it is just a, a certain perspective uh, that The Hollywood Reporter would be likely to have. So it's worth keeping in mind that the law always lags behind technological capability for a large number of reasons. We see this in telephones today um, uh, where uh, it's illegal to have a bot that's automatically sending out uh, text messages. But you can circumvent that by uh, having a bot generate the message, uh, give it to a human being to press the deliver button, and then the human being, like their physical finger, uh, hits send. That's still fine. So, uh, basically, as long as there's some meat bag that's still hitting the send button, you're okay. The, um... Well, we meat bags are very grateful. <laughs> well, uh, as, uh, now, how that integrates with what if the meat bag is paralyzed uh, and is using a chronically implanted electrode in order to hit send, that becomes a whole other matter. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, one other thing that I wanted to talk on today is this news coming out of Facebook about a new AI assistant. I think it's called AI Llama that's going to help with code development. This is something that, again, is right in your wheelhouse uh, because it intersects with your uh, background as a coder and an AI. Talk a little bit about what you think uh, about the potential for these tools, what's their opportunity set, and what's the limitation look like today? Well, uh uh, AI has been writing code for a surprisingly long time now. One of the earliest applications of GPT was, in fact, uh, the uh, the fact that it cranks out code just as surely as it cranks out English. Um, right. You know, so GPT's background was to it was originally uh, all of these LLMs uh, were originally conceived to be uh, translation software. Uh, they were originally built to translate, you know, from French to English, that kind of thing. Um, and it was found almost by accident that they're really, really good at, quote-unquote, translating from a question to an answer. Um, so, like, they, what researchers found was that the task of converting a set of words to another set of words actually encapsulates this, you know, th this functionality. So what happened was, with code was they trained it, when they trained GPT, they trained it on an extremely large corpus of text they pulled from the internet. Um, they, tra they trained it on something like 45 terabytes coming from social media like Facebook and Twitter, coming from Wikipedia, coming from all of the collected works of Project Gutenberg, uh, I think, and so on. One of the things that they trained it on was Stack Overflow and other code assistance websites. So they got a whole bunch of uh, of seed data that showed coders asking one another, uh, hey, like, I've got this problem in my code, how do I solve it, right? Um, and so with that background of material, uh, what they found was that they could actually ask GPT, uh, hey, I've got, you know, I want to write a function that does this, and it'll say, sure, here's what this function looks like in Python. Here's what this function looks like in JavaScript. It's as, you can essentially think of it as translating from a question in English to right. an answer in C++. By the way, and our Real Vision members will know uh, that this is something that you and I did on one of our chat 
GPT walkthroughs where you uh, actually asked it to generate some Python code uh, for basically plotting the trajectory of a space flight to Mars. And it just does it so unbelievably quickly. By the way, the name of the tool uh, is called Code Llama, not AI Llama. There are a lot of llamas in this space. There's something called yeah. DeFi Llama, which is one of the reference sites uh, for DeFi. So I guess Llama must be a very popular word in the Valley. I don't know why. It, it's because it's because of LLM, Large Language Model. Um, so but that doesn't apply llama. to DeFi. It does not. It's true. Mm. Um, I I can't speak to that one, but... Um, what I can say is that uh, uh, one of the most popular development environments uh, in use today is called Visual Studio Code, VS Code, and it uh, has a plugin called Copilot uh, that is very, very popular that literally just, it, if you give it a comment for a function, it'll write the function for you, uh, and vice versa, like you can ask it to like document like if you get some function from some source repository that you have been assigned to work on you can ask a uh, copilot to comment this function for you and it'll like write documentation it'll tell you what the parameters do and all of that so um it's a tool that's already ubiquitously been used in the industry now copilot is powered by gpt on the back end i think um and so llama hmm. is an alternative uh well code law Code Llama, I guess, is an alternative model that you can plug in. Um, you know, this, uh, if anything, this allows me to uh, say something that I, th that I really want to emphasize, uh, that when we were talking about uh, OpenAI losing money hand over fist, um, there's a little bit of advice that I, that I want to pass on. And especially to young engineers and entrepreneurs, you know, we've been talking, we were talking earlier about the fact that this field is exploding and a lot of folks who weren't in it before are trying to get into it. Now, the fact that OpenAI is losing money, um, the, uh, the, the main thing I want to drive home, uh, speaking from experience, is uh, don't get too attached to any one particular tech stack. Uh, you know, I say this from, you know, from my own experience, like, you right. know, we've seen it, like, in my career we've seen the browser wars where like we saw firefox and uh microsoft you know internet explorer and uh chrome right and it wasn't a foregone conclusion at the time oh yeah and netscape and we weren't it, like it wasn't a foregone conclusion at the time which one would win right um same thing with like with uh uh google in general right like google is the search engine today but, you know, we, I remember when it was still Lycos, InfoSeq, AltaVista, Excite, Yahoo, and Google was one of the players. Mikhail, uh, and Mikhail we're dating ourselves here. We are, we are. But, like, you know, uh, any, at the time, AltaVista was the big, uh, you know, was, was the big guy in town, right? That's and right. so if you got too fix, if you built a search-based solution that was too fixated on AltaVista and too interdependent with AltaVista's inner workings, uh, then you were automatically setting yourself up for dot-com failure. So what yeah. I want to say, uh, you know, to anybody who's building this tech out there is that this is such a new field. Make sure that you build your stuff in a swappable manner. Make right. sure that you are able to like take llama and you know take gpt and swap it out for llama if it has to or swap it out for alpaca uh, you know just d don't don't get too fixated on any one thing because yeah. you don't keep, know necessarily where this is going yeah keep your options open uh, an old tech entrepreneur once told me only fall in love with your family uh meaning don't get attached to anything i guess they're all ungulates right llamas uh 
<laughs> all these things camels right I, I don't know maybe that's the connection that's true camels uh and uh you know uh i'm really dating myself by referencing the cult of the dead cow um which was an mit hacker group uh from way back in the day but uh the less i say about that the better and if you know the difference between dromedary and bactrian camel case uh you know you have found the right place to listen uh, Mikhail, great conversation as always when we do these conversations. Uh, final thoughts, key takeaways. I know a lot's happened this week. Big picture, where do you think we are right now? What's happening that's got your interest most piqued? So where we are is in a very precarious place in the market. Um, the uh, There is real tech that's developing, uh, and that tech is booming. But what you should keep in mind is that the hype is going to outpace the actual underlying tech for a little while. Mm. Um, and what I mean is that, like, today uh, you might get, uh, you know, for every one real uh, hype, for every one real tech article, you might get 10 uh, hype articles, right? Uh, next week, for every two tech art, real tech articles, you might see 30 hype articles and so on. Um, so this is natural. It's, uh, you know, it, it's par for the course and it's honestly a good thing, but it's real easy to get lost in, uh, in everything that's going on. And I don't say that just for laymen. I say that, you know, as, as myself, like it's, um, it's real hard to know exactly what's going to pan out. And so just, uh, where we are right now is at a phase where buyer beware is a really, really important principle to adhere to. Well, no hype here. Uh, we're going to talk through all of these issues, give you all of the most important developments, the most important news. By the way, I should say at Real Vision, you know we love to test in production. This show is very much a work in progress. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Tell us what you want to hear more about uh, so that we can better address those needs on this show. I'm really looking forward to doing this. There's so much to cover in this space, Mikhail. So much happening here. Such a great conversation to have, especially with you. Couldn't think of anyone I'd rather be doing this show with. Happy to be here, Ash. Uh, it's incredibly thrilling to be in front of the uh, Real Vision audience and uh, everyone else who might want to tune in. And uh, let's see what happens next week. Mikhail Volotion, thanks for joining us. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.